Well, I'm going to start out with a confession. I am a simple man with simple tastes. I know some of you are going to judge me for it, but I, meat and potatoes, eggs and toast, pretty much every day of my life. When I was in Dallas, I used to hang out with a uh, upscale group of uh, career singles that liked to go to these uh, ethnic cuisines. And they, uh, I remember, I'll never forget the one time that we went to a Thai restaurant, my first ever. I pretty much ended up only eating the bread. Well, that's to set up uh, this, really, this next story. A couple of weeks ago, I made my way down to Grace Chapel. I hadn't been able to be down there all summer because of vacations and, and, and whatnot, and, and I was there with some of the other campus pastors. If you don't know some of the other campus pastors, basically, their first name is all Tom. Tom Van Antwerp from Wilmington, known as Tom V., and then there's Tom Lee from East Lexington. And uh, unfortunately, Tom B. from uh, Foxborough is moving on to uh, another pastorate. But it'll make the clarity a little bit better. Well, Tom B. and Tom B. or Tom Lee, not Tom B. <laughs> they were all there at the campus, campus pastors meeting. And, uh, and then Tom V. said, hey, I want to take you, take you out to lunch afterwards. So I'm like, great. And then he said, we're going to... Qdoba. And in my heart, I said, great. <laughs> Immediately, my mind started to strategize how I was going to uh, work my way through this, uh, because I, I didn't want these classy pastors to, to know about my, uh, my uh, cuisine disability, or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> they want to be made a fool of in front of them. So we, we walked into the restaurant. Somehow I was at the beginning of the line, and uh, I'm kind of like thinking, okay, how do I work my way to the end of the line? Uh, why don't you guys go ahead of me? No, 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 you go first. I was not about to lose this war of politeness. So I eventually got them to go in front of me in the line, and uh, the layout was pretty nice. So we went down, and they made their orders, and they went down to pay, and I, I could create enough space between me and the Toms. So I'm here looking at the menu, um, and, and I kind of lean over softly, and I, I tell them my order, uh, cheese quesadilla. And I kind of get a strange look, and I point up at the kid's menu, <laughs> and there, there was an acknowledgement. He, he got what I was saying. So he starts preparing my order. Uh, Tom V is paying down the line. It, it seems like it's, everything is working out. The, the order gets passed to a woman, a little bit of a larger woman, and um, I think I'm going to make it. I think I'm going to make it out of this okay. And I get down a step further, and, and that woman, she looks up. She looks to the left, and she looks to the right, and then she looks at me, and with this, with this big booming voice and an, and an accent, she says, where is the kid? <laughs> Who ordered the kid's meal? You know those uh, scenes in old westerns where the cowboy comes in and he asks where, if anybody's seen the biggest outlaw in town, and the whole restaurant, the whole bar goes quiet, and all you hear is a little screech of a chair on the wood, somebody turning around to see who would ask such a question? That's kind of what it was like. <laughs> That's kind of what it was like. Look, I, I know that you are, all, you are all classy 
people here, and I, I know that many of you uh, would love it if uh, I expanded my culinary taste buds, but uh, you know what? There, there's just some things in my life that I, I just don't want to change. <laughs> I know some of you have tried to fix that and pray for my wife. <laughs> but there are just some things in my life that I, I don't want to change. Uh, and if you struggle with change too, if there are some areas in your life that you don't like to change, then we're kind of in the same boat, aren't we? Uh, my mentality is it's a little bit like an engineer. If it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Um, well, we all struggle with change in one way or another. Maybe for you, it's struggling with the change of, a, of a, experiencing a new teacher. Or maybe it's the, a change in work. Or perhaps it's one of the hardest changes. Changes in relationships. Changes in relationships. Well, last week, Pastor Brian introduced our new series called Up in the Air. Up in the Air, which is all about change. And it's in part spurred by Pastor Brian's announcement that in about nine months away, he's going to be stepping off the boat into retirement. So the teaching team made a decision to let's step into this question and prepare ourselves as a, as a church for what that next step could look like. And so that's where we find ourselves today. Uh, change is hard, and it's, it's hard in church life, too. Uh, for many of us, church can be one of the only constants that we have in a constantly changing world. So when we come to a space like this on a regular basis and, and we sing songs that we're familiar with, when we see faces that we love on a regular basis, this kind of becomes a rock for us. So when change happens in the church, it can be particularly unsettling. And there's really good reason for it, too. For one, it, it shakes our comfort zones. Our brains build this barrier around certain places that we're used to and that we're familiar with, and they create spaces for us to, to rest and to be restored. So when those spaces are, are, are thrown up in the air, all of a sudden it feels like our lives are unsettled as well. Also, it, it, it leaves us with, a, with this sense of a loss of control. It's like we've lost uh, personal autonomy. We don't know what to do because things that we thought were in our control are suddenly outside of our control. And we can find that extremely unsettling as well. We realize that life isn't as much in our hands as we thought it might have been in the first place. Thirdly, it, it steers our fears of the unknown. And aren't most fears really fears of the unknown anyways? A person who's afraid of mountain climbing, for instance, how do they become unafraid of mountain climbing? Well, they go and they actually encounter the mountain. They get used to it. They feel it out. They they take their first steps. The problem with change is, when change happens, sometimes suddenly, we just don't know what the next step looks like. That unknown is, it's right in front of us, and we're not sure what to do with it. So, in light of these challenges, the teaching team put together this series that we're calling Up in the Air up in the air. And to draw inspiration, they imagined a trapeze artist, which you can see right there, leaving one rung and hanging midair as they 
are ready to grab onto the next rung. And there are really three steps. We'll be taking the first one today, letting go, letting go, uh, being in between, in between those two rungs, and then finally, after reaching out, grabbing on or seizing the last rung. Now, when you're in between rungs, it's almost voluntary. Like, you, you have to reach out for something for fear of falling. So I really think that this first step, letting go, is probably one of the most difficult steps at all because we're leaving an area of safety and security and we are stepping into the unknown. So that's where we find ourselves today as we start to dig a little bit further into this new series. This is one of the hardest steps. How can we navigate change and enjoy what's next when it's so hard to let go? How can we navigate change and enjoy what's next when it's so hard to let go? Well, to answer that question, we're going to open up our Bibles today to one of the most mysterious books in the entire canon. It's called the Book of Ecclesiastes. If you find yourself here today and you feel like you're a skeptic or maybe you feel like you're on the outside looking in on the Christian faith, um, or maybe you've been burned by the Christian faith or you felt burned by the Christian faith and you, you feel tired of what seems to be too easy of answers to complex problems, well, the book of Ecclesiastes, it might just be the book for you because it gets a little complicated and it gets a little messy. We find out in the book of Ecclesiastes that it is one of its primary writers is, is somebody called Koheleth. Koheleth. And that simply means in the Hebrew, assembly man. Assembly man. Um, for those of you who have been in church for a while, maybe you're familiar with the Greek version, which is ekklesia, which is the word that is used for church. And that simply means assembly as well. But what is this person assembling? Is he assembling a crowd so that he can preach to this crowd? Is he assembling a small group so that he can teach to them? Is he assembling just a collection of, of wise sayings like we find in this book? Uh, the truth is we, we don't know. We don't know. So we simply call this person uh, writing this book the teacher. The teacher. Well, this strange book um, with enigmatic sayings has caused a lot of a consternation about what actually is it? Uh, we put a class of literature on things like the Proverbs and the Psalms, and we call those wisdom literature. We call that wisdom literature. This doesn't seem to quite fit wis wisdom literature, so people have come up with a subgenre called counter wisdom. Counter wisdom. Now, that doesn't mean it's like against wisdom, it's not anti wisdom. Counter wisdom is a little bit different than that. So if we opened up the book of Proverbs, what we might find are a series of maxims or wise sayings that are going to help us to be successful in life. A book like Ecclesiastes has that, but it, it takes a little bit of a spin on it. And it says, you know what? Sometimes life is more complicated than that. Sometimes the exception proves the rule. Sometimes good people die young, and sometimes wicked people live to old age. 
Life is messy, life is complicated, and that's what the book of Ecclesiastes invites us to consider, as difficult as that might be. We actually, strangely enough, find a, a very small and rare example of this counter-wisdom in the book of Proverbs itself. First, we see in Proverbs 26, 4, this saying, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. And that makes sense. If we engage in a, in a, in a, in a fool's argument, then, then we're going to end up participating and, and being much like the fool. But after that verse, we find this. Immediately after, we find Proverbs 26, 5, which says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. Is this a contradiction? No, it's, it's situational. And sometimes it's, it's a little bit gray. It's a little bit gray. It's not always black and white. This small sample that we see in Proverbs is what we see a lot of in the book of Ecclesiastes as we start dig into this strange an interesting book. And that's where we find ourselves. Uh, and, to, and we're going to start off, and we're going to really focus in and zero in on the second verse of the first chapter. But because this book is a little complicated, we're not just going to spend our time in one place today. We're going to trace our way through several verses, and that's something that we usually do. We usually like to focus in on a section, but we really need to understand what this author is trying to say over a larger scope. But we're going to start in on Verse 2 of chapter 1, and he starts off by jumping right off the page. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Did I tell you he was an optimist? <laughs> meaningless. That word is a really important word in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some people translate it vanity. Or in, in one of my favorite translations, uh, they use the word futile. Futile. That word appears 73 times in the Old Testament, but over half of the times that it appears, that word appears in the 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes. So you get a sense this isn't just a one-off. This is kind of a theme that runs through the entire book. Futile, futile, absolutely futile. You know, that's something that someone might say after spending three weeks knitting a sweater and finding out that it's not the right size, isn't it? Is this guy just having a bad day? No. It actually goes a little bit deeper than that. Look at what, look at what the teacher says here. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So many of us have been in places where life has lost its meaning. Um, where food doesn't taste anymore, nothing sounds interesting, 
it's hard to get out of bed. And, and those, and it makes sense when we have those desperate feelings and, and moments like that that are often sparked by some unfortunate event. But what the teacher says seems to be really more than that. It's not just these unfortunate events. He's looking at the whole scope of life. In fact, that, that ancient, the ancient world used that phrase, all the things done under the sun, as a way of talking about the whole life experience. But vanity, futility, you know, chances are not many of us would probably use those words to encompass all of life. Certainly we wouldn't call ourselves very wise if we, if we did that. Didn't the teacher ever see a sun set over the sea? Or had he never had children to experience the miracle of, had experienced the miracle of life? It doesn't seem to make sense on the surface why he would use that words in such an all-encompassing way. Here are some other phrases that the teacher is going to seize, um, is going to use throughout the book to seize that discontent that he observed. Uh, number one, accomplishes nothing. Two, no end to this toil, to his toil, he says. In chapter 6, verse 2, a grave misunderstanding. He later says, his appetite is never satisfied. Again, he says, the few days of his fleeting life pass away like a shadow. No one can ever grasp what happens on the earth, he says in chapter 8. Everyone shares the same fate in chapter 9. The memory of them disappears also in chapter 9. I think probably the best, the best verse that really encapsulates the, the, the consternation that the teacher has is, is right in chapter 1, 1 verse 9. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Now, as a young Bible reader, I remember first reading that and thinking, uh, what about the iPhone? I mean, personal computers? Hasn't he ever heard of the printing press? But the, the teacher is not saying that there's never anything new that's going to appear or that humans aren't going to be discovering new things. That's not what he's talking about. Instead, what he's saying is when we look at the main beats of life, uh, the cycle that repeats itself over and over again, and, and the fact that nothing breaks that cycle, that's what he's talking about. There is nothing new under the sun. The teacher is going to admit, yes, people experience the joys of sunsets, dinner with a friend. They experience good things like, like romance and, and prosperity and the passing of a legacy. These are all good things that people experience. You see that throughout this book as well. The teacher's point is not that good doesn't happen. He's saying that none of it sticks. None of it sticks. I had to pull out an old illustration for this one. You remember these guys? They're great for a while. You know, they're fun. 
Uh, does anyone want to volunteer? No. <laughs> but the more that you use them, the more that they just lose their stick and they stop becoming the fun plaything that they originally were. Life is futile because the good things that we seek and the good things that we've experienced in our past, they don't stick. It's, it's, it'll be fine if the carpet's fine. <laughs> they don't stick. Last week I was uh, talking to a mom with uh, adult children, and, and she asked me, how are your kids? And it's kind of been a common answer for me. I, I got to talk about just some of the joys of being a, a dad of uh, so many small children, watching them experience the, the joys of life, and also just watching them discover life together. There are so many times where it just creates a smile across my face from ear to ear as I watch them do new things. Just the other week, my youngest uh, uh, thought, thought his older brother's underpants were a hat, so he was, you know, I got pictures. We can, I can show you afterwards. <laughs> there are so many of these amazing moments that, that, that we get to experience for those of us who are parents, uh, just watching people discover life. But there is also a part of me, sometimes in those very moments, where I grieve. Because I know that this moment will be gone in a second. It's going to be gone for a second. And there is nothing that I can do to bottle it up. So while I'm experiencing that joy, I'm also seeing it pass away, slipping through my fingertips like sand. The woman that I was talking to said, I get it. And I've experienced the same thing. You know what I did for every one of my children's birthdays? I cried. <laughs> oh, to be a child in that family where you could expect on your birthday that the, the, your mom to cry, the waterfalls to fall and, and be embarrassed. But I get it too. <laughs> I get it. I understand seeing, seeing those things pass by so quickly and, and grieving, and grieving. Life doesn't stay the same. Little kids grow, high school friends go to college, promises of best friends forever become distant memories. It doesn't stick. That's why life, in the teacher's view, is futile. But what if there was something that, that we could do to ensure that we had security in the future? Raise enough money, teacher. What if we could do something like that and make sure that we're going to have stability to enjoy, someone might have said to the teacher in this instance. Uh, what if we just put away money? What if we focus in on pleasures so that we can take in enough pleasure in our life in order to compensate when we inevitably come into contact with those moments of pain. Or what if we built a legacy, something that I could pass down to my kids to ensure that, that I am remembered and that they're successful? What if we did something like that? Well, it turns out that the teacher already thought of those things. For the pursuit of wealth, he says this, Better is one handful with some rest than two hands full of toil and chasing the wind. Uh, 
In other words, the person who gives all of their energy to gathering resources is worse off than the person who just gains a few resources and has the energy left over to enjoy them. Okay. Well, what about those who have wealth already? Turns out that he has an answer for that too. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. Have you ever heard yourself saying, if only I could get this one thing, whether it's a thing or get this thing off my list, then my life will be in order. Have you ever said that to yourself? And have you ever been on the end of receiving that thing? What happened then? It turns out that our desires are constantly on the move. Once we get the one thing, our desires don't stop. They look for the next thing, and then the next thing, and the next thing. Well, what if I left some of uh, what I earned behind, and um, it would make all of my toil worth it? Well, for those of you who have ever had to deal with a will of one of your parents, you know that that's not so easy. And there's one other problem. Sometimes you're concerned about handing all this wealth down to your children anyways. Are they going to really be stewards of it? Are they going to honor that wealth? Are they going to use it for their good? Or are they going to use it for their ill? So the teacher says this. So I loathed all the fruit of my effort for which I worked so hard on earth because I must leave it behind in the hands of my successor. Who knows if he will be a wise man or a fool? He will be master over all the fruit of my labor, for which I worked so wisely on earth. This also, this is futile. You know, fortunately, uh, not all of us have to look to the next generation and worry about what we pass on being used in a poor way, but, but will wealth for the next generation really satisfy them? And will that wealth really ensure that our, our memory and our legacy is passed down? The teacher says this, for the living know that they will die, but the dead do not know anything. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them disappears. It's chasing after the wind. It's a shadow, and it never ends. Nothing new under the sun. I tried forever to find this quote. I just couldn't find it. I, uh, a quote of a, of a Super Bowl MVP who, after the big game, said, when asked about his feelings and his response, said, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. You just won the Super Bowl. But I guess if we start to think about it a little bit, you know what? Next year, there's going to be another Super Bowl. And the year after that, there will be another Super Bowl. And chances are there's going to be another Super Bowl after that. So it, I guess it kind of makes sense. Maybe the only post-game comments that ever made sense, for that matter. I think the NFL scrubbed that quote. I searched, and I searched, and all I found was futility. It's like chasing after the wind. But I did come across another story. Uh, the first black quarterback to ever, to ever quarterback in the NFL. It was, 19, it was 1988. 
and uh, the team. Washington was led by Doug Williams up against a John Elway-led Denver Broncos squad. Williams led his team to victory, and it wasn't even close, 42 to 10. I surfaced an article in 1995. They found Williams and they interviewed him. And the article starts out by saying, Doug Williams will be watching the Super Bowl Sunday. He just wouldn't be in the game, nor would he ever be on the field again. Only a couple of years after his star quarterback moment, only a couple of years after, they said that he wasn't physically able, that he wasn't physically able to perform. And the article quips at the end, as pro football is wont to do, it is out with the old. There's nothing new under the sun. Good moments don't stick. The future that we pursue, it doesn't stick either. The only thing that does stick is our pining for them, our desire for them. That's the only thing that sticks, either the good old days or that future fix that's going to make life all right and stable. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? You know, the teacher's going to go on, and he's going to tell us that the space in between space in between letting go and, and seizing the next rung. There are good things in that space. We can enjoy life and we can enjoy the gifts of God in that space, but that's Pastor Brian's sermon next week, and I don't want to steal his thunder. Besides, there is a first step. There's a first step before we ever get into that in-between space. As the teacher discovered futility, that futility of life focused on what was and what could be, he brings us to the critical moment in the trapeze artist's swing. We have to let go. We have to let go. Now, nowhere in this uh, text on Ecclesiastes 1-2 are we going to see that directly stated let go. But as we've traced this author, as he has talked about the futility behind clinging too tightly onto the, what we expect the future to be or, or clinging too tightly on, on what things once were, it's strongly implied. We have to let go. We have to let go. We can't pass from one bar to the next if we don't release the first one, breaking the chains of what was and what could be frees us to enjoy what's next. Breaking the chains of what was and what could be frees us to enjoy what's next. Well, Caleb was a hero for his time. You could almost say that if Caleb hadn't acted, if Caleb hadn't done what he did, we may not even be here today. The Israelites, who took their name from their forefather, were marching through the desert, having been freed from the, from the shackles of Egypt, marching to a new place, a place that they could call home, a place that God said was, was filled with milk and honey. It was under their nose 
And in that moment, God chose men from each of the tribes. Caleb was one of them. And he sent them out into the land to spy things out, to check out how things were. They all came back, and they all saw the same thing. They all saw the same thing. But they did not, they did not feel the same thing. They didn't feel the same thing. This is what Caleb says. Caleb says, we should take the land, for certainly we can do it. We should take it. But the others feared the powerful tribes there, and some pointed out that the descendants of Anak, who were descendants of the, the giant Nephilim from, from ages past, were there. And, and they, they were afraid. And, and what they said next is almost shocking. If only we had died in Egypt. If only we had died in Egypt? Are you kidding me? Did they forget what it was like to be abused and to be slaves and to literally work themselves to death in Egypt? Did they forget what that was like? It's funny how we, we tend to romanticize the past when, when a situation in front of us is so uncertain. So uncertain. But they must have been talking themselves into it because some of the Israelites picked up stones to stone Caleb with. We have to go back, they were saying. What's next? There are just too many unknowns with what's next. That was a dark day in Israel's history. God almost said, I'm done. I'm done with these people. But Moses steps up and he intercedes and he reminds God of his plan to make his name known among the nations. And God forgives. God forgave them. But God did not invite them to go to the next step. It was going to be their children. And it was going to be Caleb. And this is what he says about Caleb. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land that he went to. And his descendants will inherit it. Because Caleb wholeheartedly focused on the one who, who provided, Caleb was able to courageously leave the past behind. And it freed him to take a step towards whatever is next. Whatever was next for him. Chances are, if you're like me, you want to you go back and bottle up a little bit of that past. At least the way that you remember it. And probably you would like to add a little bit of the now on top of that and just take it with you. Take it with you wherever, wherever you go. But we can't, can we? We can't do that, can we? One of the teacher's favorite words might be echoing in our heart. Futility. Futility. It just doesn't stick. But we can let go. In fact, we must let go because as time marches on, if we don't let go, we're just going to disappear with it or we'll be caught in the past. Are you ready to break the chains of what was and what could be and take a step towards that what, what is next, whatever that what next is for you? 
I just I, I thought of a few steps, a few, a few things that you can consider and to put in practice to make this meaningful in your life. And the first thing is just to identify the fear. Identify the fear that makes it so that makes it so difficult and identify that fear and don't be too quick to judge that fear because when we judge that fear or we resist that fear there's something internally in us that that pushes back against that just make space for that fear so that you can come to understand yourself what's going on inside of you a little bit better make space for it so that you can adequately deal with it if we rush too much to squash it and suppress it it's only going to get worse so so first identify Identify the fear so that you can understand it, understand what you're going through with the change. Second, grieve the loss. Grieve the loss. Don't suppress that. Give the emotion its space. Loss is real. We've talked a lot about loss aversion here, how it's one of the most motivating forces in the human psyche. We'll do so much more to avoid loss than we will to try to gain something new in our lives. Loss is real. So we need to grieve those losses, whether that's the desk that you sat at at your work for 30 years. As simple and as silly as that might seem, grieve it. <laughs> grieve it. Or whether that's sending one of your kids off to college, something so much bigger. It's a change. Grieve it. Let yourself grieve it. Doing this will allow you to experience grace. It'll allow you to experience grace in the midst of change. And it will also allow you to experience change graciously. Both. Uh, lastly, open your heart to what's ahead. Open your heart to what's ahead. Don't replace past dreams with future fixes. We have a tendency to treat the future sometimes as we do the past. We can romanticize the perfect solutions to our present problems. But the problem is that we just set ourselves up with these expectations and we set ourselves up to fail. But if we look at the future with a pencil instead of pen, then we can allow God to step in in new and fresh ways, not only to surprise us, but yeah, sometimes to challenge us too. Sometimes to challenge us. But when we encounter those challenges, when we encounter those challenges, we'll be less prone to fail because of the pencil that we wrote with and not the pen. And because our hearts were open to what God might might have wanted to do next. Breaking the chains of was and could be frees us to enjoy what is next. Letting go is really one of the hardest things because our hearts like to linger, but letting go is also one of the healthiest things that we can do. In this futile cycle that we live in, we don't, we don't have to be prisoners of our past. We don't have to be prisoners of our future we can be more, and God can do more through us as we courageously and as we wholeheartedly offer open hands to him. Let's pray. Father, as difficult as the book of Ecclesiastes is to make our way through it and to understand all the principles, it's your word that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray today that 
that you would help us, Lord, to, to identify those areas and those fears that, that we're facing as we all look at change and as we all prepare for change, Lord, so that we can become closer to you in the midst of those, so that we can open our hands and look at our future with an open hand and invite you to be a part of it, not just to accompany us on the side, but invite you to craft it and to shape it into, in, in new and wonderful ways that we can't yet imagine. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.